BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Mark Moss Show where we talk Bitcoin. We talk about the decentralized revolution and we try to bring you the education up to the minute news and some interesting people to talk to each and every week. Bitcoin's difficult to understand and so it takes some time. You have to dedicate the time to that. Um, I'm in the studio today with Dylan LeClaire. You can find him on Twitter at Dylan LeClaire underscore. Man, you got to fix that. Uh, he's a he's a market analyst at Bitcoin Magazine and UTXO Management. Um, he does amazing um, on-chain analytics, and he's got a good macro game as well. And um, Dylan's young. He's young, but he is smart. He's put the work in. And so that's what I said. Bitcoin's difficult to understand, but it, you got to put the time in. I've had people ask me, like, hey, explain Bitcoin to me like I'm five and in two minutes. And I'm just like, dude, like that ain't gonna happen. Like I can't like you gotta commit the time to it. And Dylan, you definitely have. Thanks for joining me today. Mark, happy to happy to be on. Uh yeah, I mean definitely have to have to take some time. And uh I think both of us have probably spent a few thousand hours uh thinking about this thing. So happy to happy to dive in here. Isn't it would would you agree that um almost the more that you learn, the more you realize that you still don't know? <laughs> Hundred uh, percent. There are no experts in Bitcoin, uh, and it's probably the just you know the amount of like disciplines it takes to understand Bitcoin, or really just kind of understand it from a certain angle. You know, whether it's finance, the history, the history of money, economics, computer science, yeah. uh, the, like cryptography, and that that whole history. Uh, you know, there's there's no one. The energy revolution that's happening with Bitcoin mining, like. If you claim to be an expert on Bitcoin, uh, you're li- you're lying um, because this this is a different beast. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've put in a, a little bit of time in terms of trying to understand the the finance side of it, you know, economic side of it, and I have to say it's a little bit surreal being on because I've I've learned a lot about uh, kind of finance and econ from from your YouTube videos uh, oh, thank back you. in the day. So I appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I love uh, I love to focus on, and as you said, you kind of named all those different disciplines that you kind of have to know. I kind of like the political and like the historical side of things. Um, and so that's kind of where I focus. And you found yourself liking the analytic side. And uh, that's cool, right? It's uh, like this thread that kind of weaves through society and it, and, it, and it kind of intersects all of us differently. And that's that's good. That's important, right? And we can all kind of hit these different areas. So you're kind of on this analytic side, um, which I want to dig into. Um, but, 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 but why, why analytics for you? Like, uh, were you like a math nerd? You don't look like a math nerd. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) definitely, definitely was a numbers guy growing up. Um, but really kind of just stumbled upon Bitcoin more from like the finance side of things. I was, I wanted to be, uh, I I was just good with numbers in high school and I was like, all right, well, I'll do business. Yeah. Um, and so I started reading about the stock market and really just like very, very simple things. Um, and stumbled upon cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, didn't, didn't know the difference in, in late 2018, 2019. Yeah. Uh, I'm still in, in high school at this point. Um, and just from a financial asset side of things, not like had, had no other kind of computer background or even like monetary economic background. It was just like, oh, this is a, a thing that trades on charts and I'm 18, 17, 18 years old and it makes sense. Uh, and dove down it, like down the rabbit hole really, really hard. Uh, and kind of the transparency of Bitcoin, the, you know, the, the analytics side, I mean, the whole network is completely auditable. Um, that was very interesting to me, as well as being kind of from the finance side of things. Like I went to one year of university studying uh, finance and economics at uh, the University of Vermont Business School. Um, and I, I dropped out uh, to, to pursue Bitcoin because it seemed like it was this this area that you know it was an arena of ideas and credentials didn't matter one one bit and i was like all right well you know why am i trying to get some some business degree when i'm like spending all my time learning and and uh thinking about this thing anyway yeah um, and you don't need any sort of credentials or or degree you just you know put out put out content or or not yeah. even put out content but just like again it's the arena of ideas uh, this and, is uh... and everybody's trying to provide value here yeah, this is where the world is shifting right now. I was on a on a Twitter space with Preston Pish, and somebody was saying, um, hey, we need to figure out ways that we can go educate all these lawmakers and stuff and educate people so they can really dig into Bitcoin. And, and Preston said, I'm not interested in that. He's like, I put out content. If you want it, it's here. Come engage with it. He said, but this is really going to be a shift in the world because what we have this system, this fiat money system we have today is built off elitism, Right. If yep. you can be close to the money supply, you can be, and I use the word elitism, like I wouldn't hire any of them to run in my, run, work in my business. Um, they, they have no quality, no skills, but because they're close to the money supply, they're good at politics, they can get ahead. And um, what's, what we have now is we have this shift to meritocracy, right? Where our hard work and our effort can get us ahead. And so that's what um, Preston was saying is like, look, my content's there. If they want it, they can come get it. But what we're seeing is we're ending the money printer elitism and those people are not going to get on the new program. And so we're going to see wealth shift to people who are putting the work in. Um, and, I, and I love that perspective. And that's kind of what you did, Dylan. I mean, you uh, you you found something that you're interested in, you dug in and and, and uh, to be good at something, you have to put that time commitment in, which which you did. And, and college gets you to think general about everything. Right. Like uh, 45. You're a dabbler. 45 minutes here, 45 minutes there, an hour there yeah. kind of a thing. So, um so you look at the on-chain data. Now you mentioned it's the only, Bitcoin is the only thing that has an audible, like auditable data, um, and that's pretty interesting. So when you look at financial markets, if you're studying energy markets, oil markets, stock markets, etc., you don't have the data that you have with Bitcoin. Is that maybe something that kind of attracted you a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I really just uh, as I came to understand the properties of Bitcoin and 
and the things like you know running a node what is a node yeah uh, how the bitcoin network operates absolute scarcity why has that never been a thing before how did bitcoin solve that how did satoshi nakamoto solve that problem of of the double spend problem of, of absolute scarcity of digital scarcity yeah um and so when i came to understand all those things it i was really kind of yeah my mind was blown and i realized i needed uh i was in college i was like i need as much bitcoin as i can so i <laughs> yeah. dropped out and i didn't do a bitcoin job i had i was just like you know passionately reading and learning in my free time but i was like doing manual labor like i wasn't doing bitcoin analysis sure, sure. Uh, or anything full-time remotely like i was listening to podcasts of mark moss and preston pish nice. while i was <laughs> while i was wiring outlets like it was like a very you know humbling kind of yeah uh you know nine twelve months but um as i kind of consumed all that information for free uh i was i started to uh contribute a little bit more and more and a twitter dm turned into a role kind of um doing some of the stuff that i really like but in terms of why it fascinated me um i don't know just like the on-chain kind of analytics and it gets a bad rap or i think maybe recently especially in drawdowns the the thing that on-chain analytics is so cool uh is that well one if you're just talking about price it could be about mining hash rate literally any of the economics of the bitcoin network transaction fees like it doesn't have to be price analysis that's one in terms of on-chain analytics yeah and two is that we can we can quantify supply side dynamics and so if you look at like any any of the parabolic bitcoin runs throughout history it got to a point where the supply side had increased so much there were so like the, the hodlers of last resort like you can feel that when people are like i'm not selling i'm right. buying more with on chain instead of it being anecdotal you can see it and it's and it's verifiable and so you can be like oh my god like 80 percent of the bitcoin supplies is by people that haven't spent it in six months right. uh, and so like any marginal buyer comes in like we go parabolic when a wall of money hits not a lot of supply and with right. on chain we can like literally see that accumulation and these years of accumulation and then like a six to 12 month bull run where all of this kind of hodl supply distributes and so like i'm just naming an example right. but it's really fascinating for the first time because we can see all of this happen uh and with full transparency and immutability like it's it's there it's recorded forever um if you asked how many us dollars are in circulation yeah no one knows because <laughs> yeah, it's credit based right, right? there's there's yeah. euro dollars there's it's it's all fractional reserve like no one knows how much gold even yeah um even like like sometimes there's like in the equity markets it's like how many shares are outstanding no one you don't even know that like gamestop had more shares shorted than there was shares outstanding it's like how does that happen um so with bitcoin right the trend like the just the transparency of it all and the analytics side that framework kind of fascinated me yeah so um i want to talk about what are maybe some of the one or two or your top favorite um indicators to look at on chain um i want to talk about how we look at those and kind of differences and, and what they really mean. And then I want to take that and then look at that and compare it against this macro backdrop that we have going on with the Federal Reserve and these Fed meetings they had this week and this kind of stuff. Um, I'm in the studio with Dylan LeClaire. You're listening to the Mark Moss Show, uh, talking about Bitcoin, talking about on-chain data with Dylan LeClaire. Um, we'll be back in a second. Do not go away. All right, you are back listening to the Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and this decentralized revolution that is happening right now. I am um, in the studio with Dylan LeClaire. You can find him on Twitter at Dylan LeClaire underscore. And um, he's a market analyst with Bitcoin Magazine looking at specifically mostly on-chain data, which is uh, <clears throat> looking at the 
the data about coins moving, how old they are, things like that. And there's a lot of information we get from that. Now, Dylan, um, before the break, I said that I, I was hoping that maybe you'd give us maybe your top couple things that maybe you think are important or that people should look at, like maybe it's MVRV or something like that. Um, do you have a couple like that? Yeah, I mean, you're dead on the money. That was, that was the one I was going to throw out. Uh, so with Bitcoin, right, the full transparency of the network, we can essentially see what coins moved when, and we can match that up with what the price of Bitcoin was when that right. trade, like, what, what was Bitcoin trading at when those coins are technically, they're called UTXOs when they moved. Um, so we can see, like, do things like, say, what's the average cost basis of every coin in the network? Um, and so right now, currently, that average cost basis of Bitcoin, like, the on-chain average uh, price when Bitcoin was last moved is like twenty-four thousand, right? So, so, so that means so that means so that means you look at a coin <clears throat> the last time it moved and what the price was when it got to that wallet or that address. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to think of it, maybe this is an easier way to think of it. So there's a market cap is circulating supply times the current price. Right. What we what we can do is we can have what's called a realized market cap, or it's called realized cap, where it's the circulating supply. And the price that the coins last moved, but for every individual coin, right. every single Satoshi, we can see when it was last moved with, right. with perfect record. And so the where the market cap is, say, uh, what is it today? 700 billion, something around there, uh, yeah. 700, 800 billion. The realized cap figure is like 440 billion. Um, and so we can see, so that translates to like $36,000 Bitcoin, $24,000 realized price. Um, just it's the same metric divided by circulating supply. And we can just like do things like take a ratio of those two metrics price versus the, that almost like if you want to think of it as like the intrinsic value or the subjective value of the network from every hodler, uh, we can kind of see the bull and bear cycles play out uh, with this, with the ratio of these two metrics with that, what's it called market value to realized value. You brought it up first, you right. know, your stuff yeah. MVRV ratio. You can kind of see these bull and bear cycles where price runs way, way ahead of its on-chain, basically like uh, on-chain cost basis, on-chain value. Uh, and as as more money comes in and more of those coins kind of get further distributed, what happens is that that realized cap uh, rises. So if, you, like, if you're thinking of Bitcoin as an asset monetizing, this decentralized monetary asset airdropped onto the world in 09, what's been happening since? Well, people say it's, it's, it's so volatile, but if you just look at realized price, it's in a log scale, it's going, it's just bending upwards, flatlining for a couple of years, bending upwards, flatlining for a couple of years. And it's pretty remarkable mm. to see. Uh, and it kind of strips away some of that day-to-day -day volatility that that people, you know, that gives Bitcoin kind of a better app to people that aren't too aware of what's happening. So if I take that data, that MVRV ratio, um, and I look at that data, um, what does it tell me? So it says, okay, the, the realized value or the market cap value or whatever, last time those coins moved was at 20, I think it said 24,000 or 26,000. Um, so that's yeah. kind of like, that sets the floor. So that means most people are sitting in profit. Most of those coins are in profit today. And so then maybe you would extrapolate that to say that um, until Bitcoin breaks below that level, um, there may not be this increased pressure to sell. Yeah, so Bitcoin has dropped below its its realized value only like I think three or four times in history. And they've basically, it's been, um, it's not the exact you know, didn't bottom tick exactly at 1.0 on that, that market value to realized value ratio, but really anytime it's dropped below its realized price and the RV below one, it's been a generational buying opportunity in a bear market. And so if we want to think of it, like what's the lowest Bitcoin can drop? Well, no one knows, but if it got to 24,000, you're buying it at the, 
in terms of its like relative valuation, you're buying it at like the first percentile of, of, of historical valuations. Um, and so that's just kind of how you can think of it in terms of relative value. And during bull markets, that'll that'll go out to five, six, seven times its its realized price, or it's like true price if you want to think of it like that. So we can just kind of see like relative market valuations compared to like historical values. Okay. So um, in March 2020, when Bitcoin just dropped right off of a cliff, um, what did it go down to like 3,800 or something like that? Was it below that level? It was. I think the realized price there was like about 40, 45, 4,800. So, um, and, and it was basically flatlined. It, it also reached like about 4,000 at the top of 2017. So even though Bitcoin drew down 85% uh, in this huge boom bust, that realized price actually like, it topped out around January 2018 and was flat for a couple of years. Uh, so it did drop below that in the in that March 2020 flash crash, uh, which again marked a generational buy. Sure. So um, this is just one metric, but we kind of see like you can you can really visualize well with this ratio the boom and bust cycles of Bitcoin's monetization phases. So how close are we to that um, generational buy-in moment at this point? Is that 20, 26,000 or something? It'd be like yeah, t- around 24,000, and and you know. I doubt we get there unless we see some huge macroeconomic liquidity shock, um, which honestly might be possible with with the Fed trying to taper this, you know, bond market Ponzi. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know how far they get, but that's kind of a more of a macro discussion, less of an on chain discussion. Yeah, I want to jump to that, but before we do, is there one other um, indicator or uh, on chain uh, metric that you like to look at a lot? Yeah, I really like looking at um, Glassnode classifies or quantifies long-term and short-term holders. Uh, it's kind of this arbitrary threshold that's not so arbitrary and it's more of st- statistical reasoning, but long-term holder is 155 days and a coin weights into that um, into that value as a long-term holder. Long story short, uh, you can see during bull and bear markets, this huge kind of accumulation phase by long-term holders um, as coins age into that uh, bucket if you want to think of it like that but you can see during consolidation uh, phases or bear markets long-term holder supply just bends upwards you just it's basically like no one's selling and 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 you know this group of people around the world that's continually growing they continue to buy uh and during during bull markets or when bitcoin goes parabolic you see some of those coins distribute but it's really interesting because eventually it gets to a point and whatever that point is who no one knows but the dollar BTC exchange rate eventually gets to the point where there's a supply squeeze. Like, and that's kind of a meme, like, oh, this is on chain, it's a supply squeeze. But the reality is uh, it's all supply and demand. And if we see the supply side, which on chain quantifies, continue to grow, uh, eventually there's that marginal seller becomes exhausted. And so uh, we kind of see some of that accumulation starting again. Uh, and for the last couple of months, you saw more of a distribution effect as macro fears kind of. Uh, scared everybody away. But it's just, you know, if you look at those charts over time, uh, and I try to post some of them on my Twitter feed, the long and short term holder supply, it's relative supply and all of that. You just, you see the bull and bear markets in the data, in the accumulation and distribution uh, and why the the bull markets eventually happen as kind of that wall of money hits not a lot of supply of Bitcoin. So uh, those are probably my two favorite metrics. Um, You know, you can look at the the rate of change of long term and short term holders or the total supply or relative supply, that sort of stuff. So I want to ask you, um, one of the biggest pieces of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt that I hear people throw out on, on, on Bitcoin is that um, uh, it's all concentrated at the top. 
Um, right. It's, uh, most most of the Bitcoin is owned by a couple of addresses, and so somebody who looks at all the address data, I want to I want to have you answer that, um, and then I want to get into um, like I said some of this macro stuff and see maybe what the macro backdrop looked at some of these other cycles um, and data and where we are today and what what you think about that. Um, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin, uh, talking about the decentralized revolution. I'm in the studio with Dylan Leclerc. We are talking about on-chain data, really. Uh, of Bitcoin, and then we'll compare it to the backdrop. I'll be back with more. Don't go away. It's that time of year again. The U.S. Mint is making the new 2024 American Silver Eagle and American Gold Eagle coins, and there's no better time to buy than now. Gold rose 23% in the past 13 months, and silver's up 27%. Plus, they're both still climbing. Get the newest gold and silver coins of the year from my trusted friends at Universal Coin and Bullion by calling 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Their company president, Dr. Mike Fulgens, is America's gold expert, and he recently met with financial guru Steve Forbes to discuss trends in precious metals. And both experts agree that gold could hit 2,500 an ounce in 2024. That's nearly a 25% gain from today's price per ounce. If you want to make a sound money investment, then add gold and silver to your portfolio now and keep adding as part of your regular investment strategy. Gold's been used as money for over 2,500 years. Call Universal Coin and Bullion at 1-800-UCB-GOLD. That's 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Or check out universalcoin.com slash Mark Moss. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about this decentralized revolution that we are witnessing right now. I'm in the studio with Dylan LeClaire. He's a market analyst with Bitcoin Magazine, UTX, UXTO Management. Um, he's kind of a... We don't like we don't like labels in Bitcoin, but I'd say he's a, he's a, a specialist, we'll call it that, in, in looking at this on-chain data. 
Now, um, you were explaining uh, two of your favorite indicators to look at MVRV and long-term versus short-term holders, hodlers. Um, I was going to ask you uh, about a piece of FUD real quick, which is um, that all the majority of the Bitcoin is held by a couple of addresses. Um, give us the short version and why that probably is not true. Or is it true? Yeah, I don't the, know. First, the first uh, thing to know is that one address does not equal one person. Uh, and oftentimes, actually, the biggest addresses, although it's, it is true that there are some, some people out there with a, lo- a whole lot of Bitcoin, um, just from understanding that and, and not losing it uh, in the early days. Uh, the reality is that these huge, these huge addresses, I mean, there's uh, 2.5 million Bitcoin on exchanges. And so uh, you see a lot of, you know, the biggest addresses are actually um, not one person, uh, but like 10,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people, people yeah. millions of people, you know, it, it, no one knows. Uh, Bitcoin is just is pseudonymous. So you can you can see a lot of these addresses are, are exchange balances. And when anyone presents the data in kind of a malicious way saying X amount of Bitcoin is held by the top X amount of addresses and it's a really shocking number, the reality is that Bitcoin is probably, uh, you know, on behalf of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, if you just think about, say, Grayscale Bitcoin has 650,000 Bitcoin in their trust. But that trust is owned by institutions and right. retail investors and and all the like. So yeah. uh, I think that's the, the, the FUD there. It's, it's a little bit uninformed. It's like saying uh, the Federal Reserve owns 100% of all dollars. <laughs> you know, that's almost like probably more accurate <laughs> if right, you're thinking right. about uh, FUD. Mm, yeah, good point. Um, all right. So I want, I want to kind of take, so the on-chain data, I guess, um, indicators usually are like lagging indicators. So they tell you what happened, um, but they're not always leading, telling you what will happen. Um, would you label on-chain data as a lagging indicator, or do you think there's a way to use it as a leading and more of a predictive indicator? I yeah, I mean, I would say it's both. Uh, the thing about on-chain is, um, it can be a leading indicator in terms of like, so we can take some of these, this data, um, the supply side data, um, you know, I just kind of gave the most basic one, but we can, there's all sorts of kind of top slash bottom indicators. And, and what they do is really just try to quantify like risk reward in terms of like allocating to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously like uh, what happened in the past is no indication of what's going to happen in the future, but you can kind of see with a lot of these on-chain metrics, like a relative when it's good to buy Bitcoin versus when it's not. And it's good all the time. If you bought Bitcoin, if you bought the local top, quote unquote, of any of the, the past Bitcoin bubbles, except, you know, the 2021, uh, then then you're doing you're doing all right. Uh, there is no top ultimately in Bitcoin, I believe. And it's all just local tops. But you can yeah. kind of quantify like hodler conviction and you can run it, say, relative to price and come up with uh you know, a, a ratio of how attractive it is or a, a metric of how attractive it is to allocate. And so yeah. that's just one of the things with on-chain data. I and mean, we can quantify the supply side. So when like, you know, the supply side dynamics are, are very attractive, still needs demand to come in. But we can we can see when those times are, um, which is one of the cool things about it. You know, um, a lot of people say that, like, historically speaking, which we don't have very much historical precedence, but um, about 18 months after the halving cycle seems to be where the top is. And um, November 2021 is the top as of now. We never know the top until we look backwards on it. And I guess there's, as you said, local tops, different timeframes. But it looks like November was the uh, top, at least for now. Um, And it was 18 months after the halving. Uh, Anything uh, in on-chain data that that says anything about that? 
Yeah, if, if anything, I think the both like all of really the 2021 price action was driven by, I mean, there was capital inflows, but the tops and local bottoms were exacerbated by derivative price action. So uh, it's, this isn't really on-chain data, but it's a big part of my day-to-day analysis is uh, what, what's happening with basically um, derivative bets on, t- on the Bitcoin's crypto markets. And so like you can, for instance, take your Bitcoin and you can acquire debt or margin or leverage, it's called in, in the Bitcoin market, uh, on top of that and bet on the price of Bitcoin to go up or down. And that's right. basically, that's what's called the Bitcoin derivative. It's a futures instrument. Um, and in Bitcoin, there's quarterly futures. So you can buy, say, I, I'm going to bet that the price of Bitcoin is going up in, you know, April of 2022. But there's also perpetual futures. It's basically a never-ending futures contract that rolls over. Um, and so, so like, you know, that's that's where a lot of the volatility comes from. It's more so about traders who are very, very leveraged long paying 50% annualized rates just to just to be long Bitcoin on margin. Uh, and then at the bottom, you were getting paid in, in like, say, July when Bitcoin is 29,000. It would the traders were so far positioned the other way that you were getting paid like a 20% annualized rate to long Bitcoin. Right. So like, these are some of the things where like, you know, the data, the past cycles, the literally just like the coded into uh the bitcoin source code like that the having event yeah uh, where the block subsidy gets chopped in half those things can't really predict all of this kind of human greed and emotion that's coming like that's in the crypto native asset class uh, as well as like just kind of all like its development as a macroeconomic asset class right like this recent yeah. sell-off yeah the correlation within the nasdaq has been near one-to-one for about a couple of weeks um and so there, there's a reason for that yeah so I just want to remind everybody, as we're talking about these indicators, there's never one indicator that's conclusive. Uh, you need to look at a bunch of different in- indicators from a bunch of different places to try to get uh, the best idea that you can. And when you see a bunch of indicators from a bunch of different places all saying the same thing, it gives you a little bit more confidence. But even still, then it's a, anybody's guess about the future. Now, um, jumping out a little bit. So we have this on-chain data and, and leading lagging indicators. Um, but then we have this uh, Federal Reserve and this macro environment that's going on. The Fed met. Uh, this week, and uh, I think kind of came out pretty hawkish. Said they're sticking the course. You know, they're going to taper, finish tapering by uh, March, and then they're going to start raising rates. Um, and that seems to have a big effect. So then, um, do you think that is you know at this point seems like it's what's driving the market? As you just said, I mean this this liquidity. It's kept the ratio of the you know S and P pretty close. Yeah, I would think that. I mean, you, what you saw is basically everybody kind of risked off after Powell comes off and says. Yep, we were wrong. <laughs> we were very wrong. Inflation is not transitory. Right. And it's in their mandate, you know, that's there's an employment mandate and an inflation mandate. We can debate the merits or or just like, you know, of those two mandates and how effective chasing those two are. Yeah. Uh, and I think we both say it's probably uh, not effective at all. Um, and actually, like, uh, it's pretty, pretty bad that, that we have a centrally planned uh, kind of economy around these two variables. It's but horrible. <laughs> regardless, uh, I think w- what we see here is that a lot of people are fearing uh, basically a, a deflationary event or a disinflationary event in terms of like the overall credit in the system, right? Like what is March of 2020? What is 2008? Uh, what is that in terms of like, why did that happen? It wasn't just people, people started to sell because they were scared. No, it was like more of a mathematical driven thing in terms of the fiat units in the system and the obligations, the debt obligations against that, right? Yep. And like when financial assets fall and there's, and, li- and there's an asset liability mismatch on everyone's balance sheet. Well, there's a deleveraging event and it just cascades until yep. the Fed backstops it all and, and kind of comes in. And so 
I think ultimately we're going to see another one of those. Is that in 2022 and 2024? Who knows? But I think in terms of the, the fiat environment, we've never been in a worse place in terms of how much debt is out there. Debt to GDP, you can look at uh, interest expense. I mean, the national debt's 29 uh, trillion. Uh, global debt to GDP is probably around 400%. We're in a debt spiral. There's no way to ever pay it back because um, ultimately like money's created through lending. Yeah, can't, uh, so can't uh, if we're going to see another deflationary event, how do you protect yourself against infinite counterparty risk? And if they reinflate the system after that, how do you protect yourself against the dilution inflation risk? And I think we we both kind of have come to an answer there. Yeah, that's a great question that we will answer in just a minute. Because uh, there is a deflationary crash, but there's also an inflationary crash. And most people don't realize that. They just look at their asset prices falling, but they could also inflate, but then the purchasing power is decimated. So those both both can happen. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin, the decentralized revolution. We're talking about on-chain data with Dylan LeClaire. We're going to be back and talk about how to protect yourself with more. So don't go away. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we are talking about Bitcoin in the studio with Dylan LeClaire, talking about on-chain data and uh, the macro environment. And so uh, before the break, Dylan, you were saying how, um, you know, we're, we've never been in a worse situation. Um, the Fed's tools of uh, interest rates and monetary supply are kind of done. I mean, interest rates are at zero or negative in most parts of the world, and we have so much debt, we don't know what to do with it. $20 trillion of global debt has been created in the last 20 months, 24 months. And it's almost like, um, you know, they keep, uh, the. if you look back through the last 30, 40 years, um, it's like the markets keep trying to deleverage and they just keep pumping them back up and they try to deleverage, they pump back up. But every time they pump back up, it has to get bigger. And now the debt is just so big, they can't manage it. Right. And it's like, uh, it's like so high that when the top moves, it starts getting out of control. And that seems to kind of be where we're at. Um, you had said that, uh, well, you don't, you, you know, that there's going to be deleverage at some point. We don't know when, I think that's the question. Right. Um, and then maybe there's some ways to protect ourselves. So how do you think through that? Yeah, I think ultimately, and this comes, this is kind of a completely different discipline than Bitcoin itself, but more of a monetary uh, history kind of things. Like ultimately, I think we're at the end of the, or the near the conclusion of a long-term debt cycle. So people kind of intuitively understand like the debt cycle or if more so like the business cycle, right? Like, okay, there's a boom and then a bust, like that just happens. Like, and, and people don't really question it. Uh, but these things, it's not like human productivity just drops by 10% in a, in a year, on a given year, just right. out of randomness. It's 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 more so it's it's a boom and bust in the credit system. It's a credit bubble and then ensuing uh, deflation, right? It's a inflation and deflation. And then uh, so if you just look at say like the ten year treasury or like interest rates, the Fed the Fed said interest rates over the last fifty years, you'll see you'll see a pretty clear pattern of just lower highs. Um, and so what this is kind of showing is literally the debt cycles in action. And now at zero, we seem to be at the conclusion of this, right? The Fed's balance sheet has ballooned since '08. Because there's no other interest rates were already at zero, so we've been at a decade at zero. Fed's balance sheets at eight trillion and growing, um, and this is a global phenomenon. So, what's the conclusion of a debt cycle look like? Well, it's either a deflationary collapse back onto some sort of hard backing where most of the people that thought they had an asset lose it. Um, but now with fiat, there is no backing, so it's either a deflationary collapse where everything unwinds to zero. Literally, like the asset side of your balance sheet's falling, so you sell assets, your liability side is growing as a relative size, and it just cascades throughout the whole global economic system. Well, that doesn't seem really politically feasible. <laughs> it doesn't uh, sound fun. Over a long-term time frame, right? Like we can, we, can, <laughs> we can see this happening over a couple months, but ultimately there will be a backstop because there has to be, right? 
just incentives are aligned for there to not let the system collapse. But if it does, you have you have some sort of uh, thing you can fall back upon. But if they don't, and they come in, they step in, and they print, and they expand the money supply because they have to because that's how a fiat credit system works. Well, then there's the dilution effect, right? Things are getting more expensive around you in that currency terms. So with Bitcoin, we kind of have the best of both worlds. We have an absolutely scarce monetary asset that is essentially engineered with how Bitcoin mining works and how the supply issues works, engineered to increase its marginal cost forever, or as long as hash rates increasing, uh, as long as there's an economic incentive to mine Bitcoin, which there is a strong one, monetize any waste energy around the world and you can turn it into money. Um, so Bitcoin is engineered to be harder and harder to produce essentially forever. Uh, and at the same time, we have a native property rate system built into it where you can actually self-custody your own asset. You don't need to trust a bank. You don't need to trust a government. You don't need to trust a third party intermediary. Um, so in a deflationary event, in an inflationary event, if you want to view these outcomes as binary, uh, you're doing you're doing yourself uh you know, you're doing pretty well if you hold Bitcoin. Uh, and that's why I think, and I've been kind of pushing this framework that everybody should hold at least a little bit um, if you want to secure your, your wealth and, and time into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, these uh, boom and bust cycles, as you talk about these, these credit cycles, um, it's all Fed driven. So if you go back and yep. look at charts, I mean, you can look back through hundreds of years. Um, there's always booms and busts because we're humans, human action, human nature. Um, I love vanilla ice cream. I want vanilla ice cream every day, but today I just want chocolate. I don't know why, right? So we we things go in and out of favor. We change our minds. Um, so so you know, well, shoot, we made too much vanilla ice cream. Now we don't have enough chocolate. And so there's there's a natural cycle. But if you look back through hundreds of years, you can see that it stayed you know in a pretty small channel. But right at 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 um. 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, I mean, they've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. If you look at the markets compared to gold, anyway, um, and so the the boom and bust cycles are because they <laughs> they dump a bunch of currency units into the system, and it creates this yeah. big boom, and then the economy gets too overheated, so then they suck it out, and then it just pulls it back down, and then they have to, oh next time they have to put even more in, and it gets bigger, and so each one just gets bigger, and bigger. So. Uh, what I would just say is that um, while it is a little bit natural because of, like I said, human nature, um, it's gotten way exaggerated because of the Federal Reserve. And the problem is that we don't know when they're going to decide to suck the money out of the system, right? So like we've done the best that we can and uh, we've tried to keep our head afloat uh, during that inflationary you know, growth. Um, and then and then all of a sudden they just pull it back out. Um, so shoot. I guess uh, either way, we're protected with Bitcoin. Um, at this point, we're stuck trying to be a psychic because, like, I don't know what they're going to do, right? Uh, at some point, they're going to have to step in and pump it back up, but will that be at a 20% drop? That's kind of what history tells us, right? Will it be a 30% drop? So if you had to uh, if you had to consult your crystal ball, Dylan, <laughs> which I know you don't have one. I wish you, uh, I'm sure you wish you did. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what do you think happens? Over the next year, yeah. uh, two years. I think, you know, if you're just looking at historical equity valuations, we're still at outrageously high uh, equity market to just GDP uh, readings. I think it's like 130% or something. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, and yeah, we live in a globalized world, so there might be some flaws in the reading. But just, you know, whether it's a PE ratio, right, we're still historically overvalued in equities. We saw, we saw this year in 2021, there was a $100 billion car maker with zero revenue. Like this is this is the type of thing you see at the end of the everything bubble. Yeah. So in terms of how, how far can equities or even like say housing, you see mortgage rates start to go up if the Fed stops buying mortgage rate uh, mortgage backed securities, 
which they've been doing at a 40 billion a month clip for the past like 16, 18 months. Uh, what, what, you know, what happens after that? Well, yeah. we'll have to see. Uh, but I think at a certain point, there's a pain threshold in, in markets where uh, it kind of cascades and gets out of control. And yeah. so I think the Fed doesn't wants to wants to kind of let the market deflate a little bit, uh, let let it pull back <laughs> more so with just words, right? They haven't even cut interest rates yet, right, or exactly. haven't even hiked interest rates. And they're still at zero and the market's freaking out that they might go to 50 basis points, which is kind of laughable in real terms. Right. But I think ultimately real yields can't go above zero. And so if the bond market starts to sell off, if literally every asset sells off, uh, we're going to see some really wacky stuff happen. I mean, we're in late stage fiat, in in my humble opinion, just in the historical terms. Yeah. We've never been in a big, bigger global everything asset bubble ever. Um, and so I guess you kind of have to think to yourself, what's the other side look like? Yeah. Um, and trying to, you know, interpret what tie Jerome Powell wears on a Wednesday is kind of tough. But if you understand the end game uh, and where this is all going in terms of, you know, we're going to tell our kids one day that, yeah, the whole world watched Jerome Powell or one guy say what the price of money was going to be next week. Um, that's going to be obsoleted eventually, but it's a process. And so, you know, keeping that long-term vision uh, in mind, uh, I think is, is important. And, you know, there's going to be volatility, not just in Bitcoin, but in everything as this, this everything bubble contracts and expands. And, and it's like almost like a system kind of dying. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, the one thing that we also, ha also have to keep in mind is that the law of diminishing returns kicks in. And so in the Keynesian system of this uh, non uh, never ending uh, monetary stimulus, um, there's a Keynesian multiplier, which basically means that, well, what they're trying to do is if they lose a dollar from the economy, they want to borrow 50 cents to get the dollar's growth. Once a nation gets over 90% debt to GDP, that multiplier goes down to a sense where they're not getting enough growth anymore. So now for 50 cents, they're getting 75 cents of growth and then 50 cents of growth. And then finally they're getting for 50 cents, they're getting 30 cents of growth. And then they're just digging themselves deeper in the hole. So it's not like they can just keep this going forever. At some point, uh, the music stops and um, that they just don't get that growth. So um, anyway, interesting stuff, Dylan. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Mark Moss show. We've been talking about Bitcoin. Uh, we've been in the studio with Dylan LeClaire. You can find him on Twitter at Dylan LeClaire underscore. And uh, he's, He's a contributor, uh, market analyst for Bitcoin Magazine. Does great work. You should give him a follow. Um, that's what we got for you today with Bitcoin, and you know how to protect yourselves. Thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX 80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. At- 